Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. OFS has some new conditions of registration. We'll get across what they mean. UUK has new guidance on staff-student sexual misconduct, but does it go far enough? And there's also new research on belonging and a new report on drugs. It's all coming up. So I think there's a legitimacy in a desire to make sure students have a better experience at their time at HG. But what we need to find is ways of making that, as I say, equitable, fair and, and actually... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly aim to this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us get across the week's policy goings-on, as usual, three fantastic guests. Uh, in Brighton, Michelle Morgan is Dean of Students at the University of East London. Michelle, your highlight of the week, please. This week we had our university away day event and pulling colleagues together from the sector in person I think was was absolutely amazing, especially for me because I've been working quite a bit online since joining the university over a year ago. So that was that was a great event. Brilliant. And in Tower Bridge, Andrew Hargreaves is co-founder of Data HE. Andrew, your highlight of the week, please. Oh well, this is a bit a bit selfish and a bit data he centric, really. But we um we've had two new colleagues join us in the past couple of weeks, including one this week. And I think there's nothing more enjoyable than bringing somebody on board and getting them started in their data science career. So that that's been a pleasure for me this week. Fantastic. And in Exeter, Sunday Blake is Wonky's associate editor. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. I don't know whether to make a thing of this or to be like a super proper professional, but like I'm really uh, excited because it was my first. Uh, editorial lead on the wonky daily this morning and I feel very proud of myself and it feels very surreal to see my name on it so yeah I'm very happy with that. (laughs) A fine daily it was too. So yes we start this week with regulation. The Office for Students has published new conditions of registration that will allow it to according to the press release crack down on grade inflation. Andrew what's this all about? Uh, yeah, well, thanks ever so much, uh, Jim. So as you say, this is, uh, it's got two parts to it, really. So the first part, the revisions to some existing quality conditions. And as you say, uh, my summary of that is, how does the regulator play a role and, and what are the measures around value for money? And then uh, I, I guess the second and slightly more contentious part, perhaps, to the publication is the introduction of new conditions. And these relate much more to uh, what should happen on entry to HE and, and what measures need to be in place there. And I suspect that's the one that will be capturing most people's attention in the sector. Michelle, this uh, this, this marks the moment... Uh, these are the, the, the obviously we've been talking for a few weeks now about these this the B three thing this thing where we count outcomes but this is all of the other B conditions on quality all the qualitative stuff and this is a moment where formally we're separating from the rest of the UK and kind of not taking part in the quality code anymore is that is that is that is that bad oh you know I, I was I've been reading through um, the conditions that will come into force on the first of May this year and I think my thoughts focused 
on, on two key areas. And the first was B2, looking at the resources, support and student engagement, where it stated, and I quote, that each cohort of students received the resources and support to ensure a high quality academic experience for those students and their success in and beyond higher education. And this is clarified a bit more in paragraph 2.3, where it says significant weight will rest on understanding of a particular needs of a given cohort. Now, for me, um, this is an admirable ambition But to do this effectively, it requires the right type of questions being asked to collect the right type of data. And the sector is so driven at looking at and focusing on exit data, it ignores the most critical part of the journey, which lays the foundation of what is to come. And that is the start. And as you all know, I've been undertaking pre-arrival academic questionnaires for many, many years across all levels of study. You know, and it, it not only provides a meaningful academic activity, but also collects important data by a range of student characteristics. And pertinent questions explore prior learning experiences, concerns on entry and expectations on completion. And some of the findings are stark by student characteristic. You know, so for example, looking at similarities and differences of highest entry qualification experiences for those entering level four that only have A-levels or only have BTEC access and other level three qualifications. And the data I've collected at Bournemouth, Leeds, Beckett and UEL and subsequent reports I've produced clearly show the differences, concerns and knowledge gaps of BTEC holders on entry to university compared to their A-level counterparts. And this is particularly enhanced if they're also first generation students, so don't have the cultural knowledge of university through their parents. And by having this knowledge, issues can be identified, support provided and knowledge gaps Bridge. But, 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 and but it, Michelle, this is good news, right? Because obviously everyone's been kind of obsessed with the outcomes data, as you yeah. say. But this is OFS saying, well, no, you have to think about, you know, providing the right support for students. This is great news, isn't it? It is great news. But the thing is, there is no there is no discussion about mechanisms that can be put in place so that across the sector, we get a clear and proper understanding. And what I what I feel is if this if this data had routinely been collected years ago across the sector, then for example, challenges faced by BTEC students may have been substantially reduced and it may have well have reduced the non-continuation rates, thus not leading to the situation we now find ourselves in where government is looking at defunding yeah. BTECs. And this and, and I suppose, it's a loss. you know, when when there's a, when there's going to be a dashboard on the OFS website of num of, of the of the B3 stuff, but then this stuff is much more amorphous. It's 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 relatively inevitable, isn't it, that people are going to gravitate towards the outcomes data is the thing they've got to worry about the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the one, very quickly, the one other thing that, that, that does slightly worry me in the B4, it talks about the need for further action on grade inflation. And the brief comment I would make on this is that we need to be mindful that some disciplines such as humanities and social sciences, the full range of marks are not always necessarily used in the marking. You know, in disciplines such as engineering, for example, it's possible to get 100% because of the nature of the discipline. Understandably and rightly, if universities have looked at using the full range of marks across disciplines that traditionally haven't done this, it would lead to higher marks. But that does not necessarily mean grade inflation. It means fairness of marking between disciplines. Well, well, there we go. There's a, there's a, there's a gauntlet. Now, Sunday. What we've essentially got here is a checklist of conditions designed to support students into high attainment, but then... If students get that attainment, the office for students, what did they say, will and can take action? Like, it doesn't really make any sense to me um, at all. I think... Yeah, and there is a, there is a healthy debate, isn't there, about the, the OFS's kind of definition of unexplained grade, grade inflation rather than explained well, grade well, inflation. Well, that as well. But also, you know, they, they, they said in... You know, you can quote them directly by saying that um, they said, you know, we, we're aware that grade inflation has returned since the pandemic. And I think what so students have achieved better at university when all the barriers we put in place, <laughs> limiting access to resources and forcing them to attend in-person classes or miss them. And then they can't access them at a, date, a later date or um, 
having to provide like medical certificates like so you're telling me that all the barriers are removed and students suddenly start doing better also at a time when universities are starting to seriously address institutional racism and sexual violence students are doing better like well okay kel surprise but suddenly that's a problem and i'm i've sort of sat here thinking like we must be the only sector that punishes achievement when the, when the sector starts to do better we all start panicking like what's all that about yeah kind of deepening our understanding of why the numbers are the way they are seems to be really important doesn't it uh, andrew you've you've uh, at data hg there's, you've done some interesting stuff on grade inflation at level three yeah that that's right jim and in fact i i, I was also um casting my mind back because i even think we did a piece uh, on on grade inflation in he and we uh, you know, our conclusion is that it doesn't really exist, which won't necessarily help um, some of these measures. We can't find any real hard evidence that uh, the properties of the awards being higher are you know, kind of discrete action of an individual's decision to make an award that's not not appropriate for for that particular individual. So we're a little bit suspect about about all of this in terms of are we chasing a phantom are we trying to fix a problem that's that's not there and certainly as you said at level three um we uh, have done work that's looked at the trajectories of, of grade improvement over time and actually the trajectory has just stayed consistent it's only the comparable outcomes policy that entered or created a disruption to to grade awarding at that level and as i say we carried that work on into into university awarding and couldn't really find uh, any particular patterns that suggested this this concept of inflation actually really even existed michelle there's a lot in here that kind of replaces an old system of quality assurance which was very much focused on the quality assurance agency convening a bunch of academics who would come in and make some judgments some academic judgments and there's a lot in here that kind of implies that whilst OFS might seek some advice from academics this is very much a regulator making these judgments in the future does that does that is that worrying people around the sector um I find it worrying I think that um you know and and, and I and, and I think actually to be honest with you I think many colleagues um are still trying to absorb the implications and the impact and I think one thing that I'm very mindful of is that quality assurance isn't necessarily quality enhancement um, and it doesn't necessarily lead to equity. And I think that's a real major problem that we, as we start to um, look at, address, I think it's going to come screaming at us. And there is this sense, isn't there? I mean, I, I was a, you know, not only uh, did kind of OFS's kind of incoming um, uh, interim CEO warn last summer that there would be some kind of very public regulation to kind of send signals to the rest of the sector uh, coming down the track, but also there was this uh, amendment to the skills bill a couple of weeks ago that gives OFS legal immunity from saying, you know, controversial things about providers. So we'd have to assume, wouldn't we, that that, that OFS is kind of gearing up to make an example of some places. I feel like. Um- um, there's so much subjectivity around like the whole like I know we're just saying like there's different interpretations of what it is like what different terms mean but like there is so much like okay I know that this is a labored point but like phrases like adequate challenge like that's going to make it really difficult for them to implement and make examples of places because that's so easily disputable or things like up to date like up-to-date materials and well, yeah I get it right that's obviously important for like vocational subjects because it has impacts on employability but 
you know, aside from coming across condescending that academics who are experts in their field <laughs> and contribute ongoing knowledge and research in that field won't be up to date, that's a subjective term because like to me, an up-to-date curriculum is a decolonized one. And yet many people who are in favor of enforcing that as a condition would argue against decolonization as a form of mo- like modernizing in the curriculum and keeping it up to date yeah but sh- sure but 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 if you know if a student at some provider is being taught something that is demonstrably out of date like i don't know a piece of software that doesn't exist anymore or whatever this this allows ofs to take action doesn't it yeah but have like i don't think that that's clear enough right you can't just put a blanket this is a term that we're using a blanket across all subjects when we're talking about specific disciplines right like that that's the whole point you, you, that, that if you're going to be making public examples of institutions you need to be very specific about the terms that they need to adhere to otherwise it's just incredibly unfair yeah and i guess that you know the, the, the meaning of up to date might change from subject to subject which is why we used to have academics make these judgments exclusively i guess yeah well i i, I think in all of this and by the way i think points colleagues are making about um you know how, how do we really define this how do we measure it how do we make sure there's there's fairness etc I think we also have to put on the table that it's perfectly reasonable for a regulator to want to be concerned about quality. And as I say, in in my world, coming from industry, this whole concept of value um, and that the sector needs to find a way of uh, kind of embracing that and working out how do we do this? uh, Because we can't ignore that. I mean, to your point earlier, Jim, and you know, as you were chucking in as a challenge, that this has got the student at the heart of it. And I have to say, when I'm out visiting universities, I see content uh, that I'm just like, oh, come on, you can't be using a business school business case that's from the 90s, surely, to talk about about these it's a great examples. Um, yeah, indeed, uh, but maybe <laughs> not the best one. Pop, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the best one for contemporary views of, of developments in business and industry, unless unless it is a reflection on that point. And I see, I do see a lot of it. I'm afraid. I mean, I pull content down sometimes and say guys this is on your website um and you're asking me why you know why aren't students um you know why why aren't they engaging with you or why aren't they choosing you as an option so i think there's a legitimacy in a desire to make sure students have a better experience at their time at he but what we need to find is ways of making that as i say equitable fair and and actually i mean i really am interested in some of the measures that are going to try and put around this for me from what i've seen on university campuses like the key to that is student partnership right because if you're talking about particularly this cohort of students sort of born 1997 onwards like the born digital right so much of this stuff is just absolutely second nature to them and i'm, I'm thinking of um like humanities degrees, for example. So I'm thinking of like things like critical theory, where they're taking on sort of mid 20th century uh, philosophers and you've got students who are applying that to things like TikTok and you've got all this technology that's moving faster than the research grants can keep up with it, right? But the students are there doing almost field research every single day and it's that's where that's where you keep the university and the knowledge production up to date. It's by using the incredibly natural native skills of the cohort of student as partners in knowledge production. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, isn't that a great example of how we make this how we make this work? Because our natural default, and, and I think, you know, as a sector, we can be a bit guilty of this is kind of like oh, it must be bad and I think Sunday just brings to life an illustration of going it needs a bit of a paradigm shift in the way that we think about about this stuff and how do we involve the whole body in in making it work and, and Michelle th- Michelle the thing about this is right so you, you know I quite enjoy reading this sort of stuff on a on a 
you know, a Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock when OFS sends it to us for the following morning. But but I'm weird (laughs) (laughs) and I'm paid to do it. And don't we need, I mean, in an ideal world, wouldn't we want this kind of, you know, translated and explained to students so that, you know, students can reflect on whether they think their content's up to date and then have that conversation in partnership with academics. It's all very OFS will come and do things, isn't it? Rather than kind of changing the culture on campus. No, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the things that we do need to look at also is the how often the curriculum reviews are done um, and, you know, make sure that it, it doesn't just become a mechanistic process, but is actually really a living, evolving process. And very often, just with the demands in university, it, it can feel like a tick box exercise. And especially when you've got change of staff who, you know, get given materials from the previous lecturer or module leader, you can understand how there is a lag and how maybe the curriculum can be sluggish and not kept up to date. So I think, you know, in light of this, we, we, we really need to go back and review the whole curriculum cycle. Good. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This is Georgiana Mihuts. Together with Ellen Hazelcorn, I wrote a blog for Wonky on our recently published research handbook on university rankings. Ellen and I also co-edited the handbook. In our blog, we draw contributions from different authors to make three main points. First, We show how rankings and the massive businesses behind rankings have created vast data lakes on higher education institutions. We also highlight that this endeavor is not unique to higher education, but part of a global growth in the field of measurement used for knowledge governance. Second, we make the case that rankings do not tell us much about teaching quality, the quality of internationalization practices, or the quality of a higher education system. Instead, rankings have encouraged universities and academics to perhaps abandon their social responsibility. On the eve of the 20th anniversary of global rankings, this blog and the handbook it draws on allow us to reflect on the lessons learned and the possible ways to move forward. Now, earlier this week, Universities UK published new guidance on staff-student sexual misconduct. Michelle, what did this say? Yes, thanks, Jim. Yes, a new report from Universities UK advises universities to strongly discourage personal relationships between staff and students. It calls for a ban on the use of non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, in sexual misconduct and harassment cases, and improvements to reporting processes and record keeping. The report was produced by an advisory group, including representatives from NUS, Guild HE, Professional Research Bodies, UCU, the 1752 Group and Rape Crisis England. However, in a series of tweets two days ago, the 1752 Group disassociated itself from the publication. The report situates measures to address staff to students' sexual misconduct within broader work designed to tackle all forms of harassment and inequalities using the definition of harassment from the 2010 Equality Act and calls for change based on collective responsibility. Now, Sunday is strongly discouraging enough. No, I I don't think so. Um, (laughs) Obviously. I mean, okay, look, obviously we have to appreciate the huge amount of work that's gone into this and that the legal advice that UK would have sought would have been serious legal advice. Um, And UK are obviously dealing with multiple stakeholders with conflicting opinions. uh, And there are some very vocal actors, myself included. But um, local UCU branches obviously argue against sort of strongly discouraging or banning relationships um, because their members obviously express an interest in maintaining that allowance. Um, and yeah, as as Michelle said, the 1752 group sort of come out against it. But I think that 
the, the thing we've strongly discouraged is it is a, it's a grey area and it, it that's what we have at the minute and it, it is disappointing to see guidance fall short of what so many people deem a, a necessary preventive action to prevent behaviour escalating to that which we've heard um, in Al Jazeera podcast, the degrees of abuse. You know, that is... For, for something to be strongly discouraged that could end up being serious, life-changing and traumatising abuse that happens in institutions, I don't think that's that's adequate enough at all. And like I said um, in, in a piece I wrote for the site, law and medicine have had had these rules for, for, for decades, right? And we're so far behind that. And I, I just feel that, um, it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's not enough to say that, we will strongly discourage because anyone who has nefarious or malicious intentions is not going to listen to being strongly discouraged. Andrew, these are consenting adults in an adult environment. Yeah, I, it's, I, I worry on this that I'm going to sound like somebody from the 1950s or um, alienate loads of people. But I I come from industry. Um, I'm, not, I'm neither a student nor a member of staff in a university. But through my career and my life in industry i've just i've just always held a firm belief that you just this this is doesn't have any place in the workplace it doesn't have any place in a professional uh, environment including a teacher that that's not withstanding i get that we're human beings i get that these are these are adults but i'm afraid i just i just it's one of those kind of lines for me about there's, there's somebody with a position of power in most of these relationships there's somebody uh with less power in these relationships whether it's a manager and a member of staff whether it's a you know, a, a community figure. Yeah, I'm afraid I am very, very kind of red line and clear about it. I've seen so many people lose their careers. I've seen so many lives ruined in my time. I've exited so many senior managers who've crossed the line in my working life that I'm just like, just don't go. Don't, don't even think about relationships at work. You know, I'm so <laughs> glad you said that, Andrew, because when you were saying you're like, oh, I come from, you know, the 1990s or um, or the 90, whatever you the said. 50s, 90, I 1950s, you said, okay, <laughs> even further back. But like, you know, you, you I'm so glad you said that because when you were saying this, I thought, oh, he's going to come out and say, oh, I'm, I'm old school and I'm in, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with him and and I'm glad you said that because uh, one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about and talking about a lot recently is um uh, you know to students to members of senior management at different institutions I know is that you know there there are generational differences in how we view and conceptualize consent and I like to think of myself as relatively young I don't know how much longer I can do that for but like (laughs) my understanding of consent even mine who was, you know, I was at university four, three years ago. It is not at the level depth of incoming freshers, right? And we have a generation of students who are not only incredibly clued up and well-versed in their own generational understanding of consent and power differences, that understanding is developing at such a quick pace because, you know, they share infographics on Instagram, they have videos on TikTok, that it's no longer a 10-year difference generation in, in in misunderstanding each other or having different understandings. It's now three or four years and a new, more nuanced understanding of consent comes in. And university policy, policy teams cannot keep up with that. You know, I've sat on review boards for sexual misconduct policies and everyone in the room, by myself, has been over the age of 40. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, I'm not here to say one side is right and one side is wrong. I mean, I do think that, and everyone knows quite clearly what I think. But 
But putting that aside, this is a fundamental difference in what is and isn't acceptable. And it will continue to cause problems on the ground until some kind of space is conceded to the more progressive, younger understandings of power imbalance because it causes real material problems. And it actually re-traumatizes students because they perceive wrongdoing. They take it to the university who turns around and says, well, from our 1980s idea of what consent is, this is what the policy is based on and therefore nothing's gone wrong. And the students go... The, un- the institution is institutionally sexist and the institution goes, we're not institutionally sexist. And it's because they're, they're not talking to each other across that generational divide. And you see it happen. It flares up on social media. You know, it, it taken away from the argument of consenting adults versus power imbalances. Forget that. And just look at the fact that until UK put out some actual guidance that takes into the consideration of, you know, of the opinions of young people, this is just going to keep on like hitting each other and it's it's going to cause so much upset and trauma so yeah I am disappointed that the report didn't go my way and the way that I personally feel but I'm also disappointed because it didn't go anywhere near the length it needed to to really take on board uh how how different young people's understanding of sex and relationships now is nowadays I think there's a burden on 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 those people those people in power to so in addition to the kind of consent side of this discussion, there's also what's the right thing to, one, acknowledging you're in a position of power, and then two, just drawing a line for yourself that says, I mean, and I have been on the receiving end of sexual advances in the workplace as a senior executive and just had to draw on people and say, put a barrier around me, get these people away from me, Bec- by by having a constant conscience that I have the power in this moment and my responsibility is to completely end this transaction. And, and so there's something as well for me about just, and I know I'm appealing to people's conscience really, but just just always asking yourself in that moment going, who's got the power here? And therefore, where does the burden of responsibility sit? Yeah. I feel like student officers who are elected from their peers know that as officers not to sleep with students their age. I think that like people 10, 15, 20, 30 years older than students should know it's as well and I know I know this is an emotive issue but that power that you talk about Andrew like that 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 power imbalance goes into the policies as well because we have to remember that the people that get most upset about these issues are probably people who have some kind of personal experience now obviously that's not always the case some people just have a moral compass but like I think the unfairness in this and the power imbalance is that you get these people who are in happy healthy relationships that began between a student and a member of staff and they sit on board meetings or they 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 email me or whatever and they say I'm in a happy, open relationship with someone I met as a student. And I think, okay, well, those who have had detrimental experiences of intimacy, they're not going to want to speak so publicly, are they? Particularly if it was abuse or particularly if they signed an NDA. So what what experiences are we getting when we come and do open calls for contributions and uh, and ideas around policy? We, we get it from the people who benefit from the relationships to begin with. I think the document is welcome. And I think it's something that has been long overdue. And I I absolutely understand the disappointment. I think it provides a framework for ongoing discussion and work, because for me, it raises more questions that I think would be helpful to address, especially when looking at the issue of declaration and outright ban. I think it's also important to recognise that the discussion mustn't just be about staff to student misconduct, but needs to also incorporate student to staff misconduct, because a predator is a predator. 
doesn't matter if you're a staff member or you're a student member. And, I, and over the years, you know, I have seen staff who felt incredibly uncomfortable about students behaving in a, in a, in a sexually um, unacceptable manner. Um, and, and can I just, just say, I also agree with you all that staff-student relationships should be avoided to protect both parties. And it's also about professionalism. However, life's not that strip, uh, straightforward and comp- simple and life is not that straightforward and is complex. So for example, questions that I've been thinking about, is the relationship pre-existing before the student became a student? Yes, that can be declared. Is the student actually a member of staff who works alongside that staff member? Yes, that can be declared. What happens if the relationship breaks down after one of the individuals has become a student? Does it become a university issue or a personal one? Would the ban include all staff on different contracts, whether that's a student having a relationship with a part-time hourly paid lecturer or an administrator? And another area for thought and further exploration is is that abuse doesn't necessarily come in the form of easily identifiable, inappropriate or unacceptable behaviour, which is the point, Sunday, you made very, very well in your piece. I think you know you make some. I think you make some really good points, and this is this is a very very complicated um, area. You know, it is a much more palatable and safer route to say we have a blanket ban and we will make exceptions in common sense scenarios. Then, you know, we 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 will just we, what we will do is we will just say anyone can date anyone, and then we'll we'll do some remedial action when the traumas happened. You know, like it, it's so much safer for everyone involved, including start like, you know, I'm talking about, you know, if staff are given the go ahead to come on to students, that's opening the staff up to accusations of harassment. And again, if we go back to that generational difference, they may not be seeing their behavior as harassment. So it's protecting, it's protecting everyone, right? But I do, I do get tired of the hypotheticals, um, you know, the hypothetical retiree who wants to do a hypothetical retirement masters, a hypothetical institution, a hypothetical husband teaches that for 40 years. And I just think that we need to ground a policy in the reality of like the v- vulnerable students' experiences. Thousand and one days after Philip Orgo presented his review of post 18 education and funding, the government of Westminster has finally responded. And not only that, launched a whole package of HE reform that will impact on universities, students and graduates for years or even decades to come. It's been controversial already, but like all these things, the devil is in the detail. Now, to unpack it all, we're hosting an event on Tuesday the 8th of March called New Rules, where we'll dive into that detail even further with experts and leaders from across the sector. And I'll be joined by Philip Orger himself for an interview about the review and its legacy. So, do join us for new rules. If you can't make it on the day, register to receive the recording after. Just head to wonky.com forward slash events. Now, next up, a week or so ago at Secret Life of Students, we launched research in conjunction with Pearson on belonging. Sunday, what did it tell us? So I have been working uh, on this research and it is really, really exciting. Um, It's basically a year long study. Uh, of belonging. Uh, We've got 15 uh, student unions involved and we have recently put out our first output. So this is a survey of uh, just over 5,000 students and we're basically looking at belonging um, and what what, (laughs) it feels like such an intangible concept but like we're trying to understand what it is that helps students feel that they belong and uh, are part of the university community. Um, so we found that uh, uh, two thirds of students feel that they have a sense of belonging, um, but actually one in 10 
uh, disagree. Um, and then we were like, okay, so what, what, what is belonging? <laughs> you know, is it, is it ownership of space? Is it people who think the same way as you? You know, it, like, what, what is it? And, um, students came back now we, we did quantitative data and qualitative data so um we uh, also got to look at diary um entries which um are fascinating that's my job and i love it um and we were looking at so students basically report that um belonging at their university is associated with feeling settled in um so that can include things like the local like the locality like knowing your way around the city like something as, as simple as that uh, knowing how to check a book out of the library um feeling included feeling safe and being treated respectfully. Um, and then a lack of belonging was uh, associated with lower academic confidence and a lower sense of connection on the course. Um, then we also looked at students' self-reported uh, mental health sort of before and after they came to university to see, uh, uh, just to see if there was any variation or association with belonging and inclusion that went beyond like demographic variation. Um, and a key exception for uh, was students with disabilities who basically they said that they were less likely to report a sense of belonging inclusion across the majority of the variables that we explored um, and then obviously we explored what would help students who didn't feel that they belonged to um, develop uh, a deep sense of belonging and this was basically deeper friendships as as the number one um, priority um, and then there was lots and lots of points of different uh, points of intervention um, and one of the strongest points which I find fascinating was like um, structured informal time so um, things like induction sessions or coffee mornings where people can come and bond over course material or uh, well, you know their 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 assignments um, or just being a, being being a student at that university in that department um and but without the kind of stress of being assessed um so yeah really interesting and obviously we are only um a little you know we're not that far into this sorry I could talk about this forever I know I'm going on quite a lot um we're not that far into it obviously the, the full results and findings will be out at the um at, at the end of the year but but Gail and Debbie have written up um our findings so far on the site so so yeah we should definitely um check that out because it is fascinating. Michelle, you're obviously someone who uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, in recent years thinking about incoming students. What were your uh, reflections on this? Oh, I am so excited by this report. And I, th I think it provides such, such valuable insight and a snapshot into the lives of students during an exceptional period in higher education. And, you know, as I was reading through it, this information can also help universities support the B provisions we spoke about earlier. Um, and so I think it's really important that it's incorporated into that discussion. But for me, the part I found particularly powerful and fascinating was the safety, respect and empowerment se uh, se section. And it showed how different student characteristics impacted on how they felt in terms of being treated with respect, feeling able to speak freely, being able to be themselves. And the last page, which asked what would help students feel a greater sense of belonging at the university, friendship and peer connection, came out strongly across all demographics and modes. And we've long known that this is important, but COVID has ripped a huge hole in that activity being able to take place. And I'm acutely aware now with, with, with my students that many are still feeling anxious about coming onto campus and engaging and adopting behaviour that they have never done during their university studies because of the pandemic and periods of lockdown. So we need to proactively support students to engage. I think the report is so powerful and insightful. I think it should be continued. I think the research should be continued for the next few years to not only monitor all the changes 
coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but to obtain a normalised benchmark data. And I also think that it should be compulsory bedtime reading for all senior management teams within universities. <laughs> Andrew, I was particularly struck by the stuff on imposter syndrome. I guess, you know, we, we're used to talking about imposter syndrome from a, from the perspective of careers and when people leave university. But this idea that people will have significant imposter syndrome at university, I thought was, you know, was, was really kind of salient in there. Yes. And I'm, I, I also was struck by, by that, Jim. I should do a little bit of um, self-declaration that my... Um, my work in my postgraduate occupational psychology degree was kind of all around this theme, but in industry about how do you create a sense of belonging and what it, what actually is it? Um, and I laughed at the imposter syndrome symptoms as well, because I've suffered that myself many times in life, probably even today. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think the whole, I mean, I really, really think it's a great, great piece of work and got lots of um, potential in it. I, the, the one caution I would give is that you can, you can get lots of findings, but, but I think there's some, and we suffered, we've suffered with this in industry for a long time about what do you actually do about some of this stuff and what what do you put in place to, to actually overcome barriers, whether it's imposter syndrome, whether it's a sense of belonging, whether it's a sense of community. And I think there will be some really helpful insights, as Michelle said, to get people reflecting on and thinking about. Um, and but it will have some very practical questions around because I, because I know in this, in industry we've been wrestling with this for an awful long time because you know people talk about fit and then actually say but fit means that you're just like me and you get into the whole kind of cookie cutter world so I think there'll be some real challenges for the sector about once this work is out there is there anything actually practical meaningful that people can do because uh, I have to say having worked on this for most of my executive career in organizations as a as an organizational psychologist it, it, it's probably proven to be the one area that people struggle to put their finger on and to actually put meaningful activities in place beyond you know candidly training training people on equality and inclusion and diversity which I'm not saying don't have a place but I'm not sure it makes a profound difference to whether an individual feels feels included of a sense of belonging in a place but the other thing as well we should always remember is some people don't belong in a certain place um, not because of them but but and 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 I do you know we must be careful to not try and force that onto people because some people genuinely are not happy with their circumstances or their environment and then there's another side to that that says well actually I'm not trying to force you to belong how do we actually help you to manage a transition I think that's another important part of this as well I think I think we can also I think we can also take from business and industry um and uh this was part. This was the focus of my PhD by publication. I looked at engagement in business and industry using Kahn's model of engagement, and they, he basically says you need three elements: that is safety in the workplace, meaningfulness, and availability of support. And that's applicable to students and staff. And I think that maybe we ought to be also looking at those areas to kind of underpin um, universities going forward in terms of engagement and belonging. Sunday, you've been looking at the diaries, right? Isn't, isn't there a danger when you get this kind of stuff that, you know, you you identify the groups that are, you know, less likely to feel like they belong? Because there's a group of people who arrive at university who, who look and sound like, they've, you know, they, it was their destiny. <laughs> they kind of throw themselves in very quickly, right? Isn't there a danger that we end up kind of applying lots of kind of, you know, actions to these underrepresented groups, when actually half the problem here is there's a bunch of people who feel like they've always belonged who are pretty dismissive of the people who don't. One one thing that I read that came up that uh, that really struck me um, was that 
a student was talking about um, like a WhatsApp group that he'd been added to, or they'd been added to. I don't know why I'm assuming it's, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a he. Um, and I don't know anything about this student and he didn't really know any, like, because it was a WhatsApp group, obviously, you know, you've got your tiny little icon, but you don't really have anything else apart from the number. And he was saying that one of the things that he really liked about that space, um, the course WhatsApp group, was that there was nothing about anyone's identity there. And all they were bonding over was the course. And it created this kind of like leveled sort of liminal space that they could come together in where, um, you know, middle class inflections of of the <laughs> of prestigious universities or, or race or, or people's uh, English profici- proficiency or whatever it was. Um, it was not that apparent in this WhatsApp space. And I thought that really uh, struck me that there's a point of intervention there that actually students are coming to university because they have an interest in this specific academic discipline. And that's where that's where we can foster these kind of very diverse friendships and obviously create belonging without necessarily grouping people around identity, which I think is good. And I think it's important, you know, that we have these networks and societies that are based around LGBT identity or, you know, women in leadership, whatever the initiative is that different institutions are doing. But, you know, you then come across figures like the highest percentage of students that are dropping out of university are working class white boys. So what do we do about that? And when when they when they self-report that it's because they don't feel that they belong there, how do we address that? Right? Like, do we set up a working class white boy network? And I think that obviously those networks, of course, they have their place, especially in institutions that have been historically, uh, you know, hostile to these groups. But I do think that there's something in connecting and building belonging around the course material, around that kind of fundamental primary. Uh, that primary goal and mission of the university. Um, I thought that there was something really pure and organic and, and, and human about that. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that doesn't see very much in this week's news and it wants to make an amusing opening gag about. There's a bit of an allegaic tone this week as we wave farewell to the HESI UK performance indicators and look back to a world where we expected academic staff to be able to demonstrate their competence at teaching. I plotted the proportion of academic staff with teaching responsibilities in 2020-21 who hold a teaching qualification against the proportion of undergraduate students from that year from a low participation, that's polar four quintile one, background. There is a pervasive meme that students that are geographically less likely to attend HE require more active approaches to teaching, whereas traditional students can just be left to figure stuff out for themselves. I've never been sure of that myself, but does the data say that non-traditional students will see better qualified teaching staff? Does it correlate? I would say no. And there is a reason why <laughs> because 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 many institutions are really good at wanting um, colleagues to actually undertake teaching qualifications but when there is a requirement that you can do a teaching qualification or get a fellowship of advanced HE um, the fellowship is designed to demonstrate that teaching I'm going to say yes 
no other reason than Michelle said no. Uh, and um, I was kind of, I think there's something caught up in this definition of what's, what does good at WP mean? Because you can have some universities that have very, very high ratios of, uh, you know, WP entry. But in truth, it's just because of where they're geographically located. We see all of that in the data all the time. And you've got other universities that just don't have a natural access to it. And so they have to do some different things. And then I just sat there and thought, what goes on in those universities? Well, they're mostly teaching. They're mostly slightly more limited in resource. They typically have a slightly, you know, a lower research base. Uh, and so I'm just going to say yes, because I was just doing some numbers through my head going, um, probably serving people in a, more, in a teaching environment more. But I don't know whether that means they have to have a teaching qualification. So, yeah, I just went yes through numbers. The answer is no. R squared is just other 0.1, but looking at the graph, it's possible that some of this is a function of the low quality of teacher qualification data. The graph certainly has a shape that suggests the possibility of a relationship. A part of this may be a function of more traditional students attending more traditional providers. The data is from the 2020-21 academic year, the last ever year for the UK performance indicators. And where the data doesn't exist, I have not plotted it. And finally, Heppy has published a pamphlet on drugs this week, if you see what I mean. Andrew, why might this be controversial? Well, of course, the whole area around drug use is is uh, controversial in so much as, you know, there's an instinctive sense of we want to protect people from from drug harm. But of course, as a society, we've chosen a more punitive approach to that. And this paper uh from you know from from what i can see is is putting on the table a debate about actually we need to have a much more health focus on and I, and actually i thought I'd, I'd share a personal story on this in that my husband died two and a half years ago from health related drug abuse and i can say my own experience of that was nothing other than a, a punitive system of police interventions with little support or help for me from him from anywhere else um and so there's there's a definite you know I, story of tragedy in, in all of the in many of these cases and, and what's really clear to me is what we're doing as a society isn't working whether it's students or other groups of people demonstrate a desire to want to uh, take recreational drugs to whatever degree based on any individual and if we recognize that they are harmful then I have to say I really welcomed this broad thrust of We've we've got to stop seeing it as as necessarily as a criminal issue and start to see it as 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 underlying issues. Because as I said, I've, I've lived it, I've experienced it for myself, and I watched my husband of ten years die at the age of forty seven as a consequence of of this. And I really worry for young people that 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 could be their experience if we don't have a zeitgeist about the way we approach this. Mm. Michelle, it's 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 a complex area, this, isn't it? Because you've got you know the kind of expectations perhaps that parents might have. I mean, you've got students at UEL that are on the kind of you know policing apprenticeship. I mean, presumably, you know, some of the kind of external <laughs> crediting bodies would have a problem with a kind of a, a kind of fairly you know the kind of approach that Graham Towell is, is recommending in the report. Yes, I'm, and and it is a discussion that has to be had, and you know. Um, a strategy developed and you know equally as as with Andrew I think the authors were absolutely correct when they say that the issue of illicit drugs cannot be viewed in isolation from approaches to mental health and well-being drugs may be experimental but they can also be a response to things going on in individuals lives you know I worked with the homeless um, and some of the stories and life experiences which then led to the alcoholism and then led to to drug abuse you know it, it's heartbreaking and if through a pragmatic approach as suggested by the authors students can be equipped with knowledge and 
tools to make informed decisions about their health, whether it's having an alcoholic drink while on antidepressant medication or trying cannabis for the first time, I think that's a good thing. I think part of that approach is also about educating staff to be aware of and be able to not only identify mental health and wellbeing signs, but also the signs of individual illicit drug misuse. But this comes hand in hand with staff being trained to ensure correct approaches are adopted in helping to support individuals to you know, to help safeguard everybody. I mean, I think um, it's interesting that you asked Michelle about, you know, what, what sort of p- the police would say, because the report does actually quote um, a chief constable and a crime commissioner who are, who are both sort of saying, you know, the, 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 the current approach is ridiculous and, and it needs to change. So we, we're hearing it from people who uphold the, the laws themselves. Um, and I think, you know, it, it does actually... He, I really like the way that Graham writes reports because he does it in a real sort of like encompassing way. And he considers things like, you know, the legal implications of publicly funded bodies, uh, you know, doing what some may seem as condoning uh, drug use um, and the impact that that would have on them, you know, aside from the sort of like sensible evidence-based policy um, proposals. Um, And I think one of the things that he did that sort of... um, perked my interest a little bit is he actually goes a little bit further than other interventions on this so before you have sort of um, people approaching universities and saying you know we really need to get your students are taking drugs and we need to get them to stop so we need to get them to stop by coming to mental health services and what graham does um is he actually goes a step further and says we don't need to get them to stop we need to meet people who are using drugs where they're at, which is what all the research on addiction says to do, and basically make it very safe for them and foster a culture of trust between uh, the, the drug user and the institution. And what he argues is that, yes, in the short term, they will be taking drugs, albeit more safely. But what it will do is it will create the potential for future engagement should the student wish to reduce their drug use at a later stage. And I think that is where the report goes further than other interventions on this have gone before and I think it's fantastic so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to Michelle Andrew Sunday DK everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen and until next week stay wonky stay wonky